Good morning, everyone. Good morning. Good morning. Grateful to be before you all today. This is the Lord has allowed. So, this is a sobering text. So, just pray that it impacts all of our hearts and our minds in a way that leads us closer to Jesus. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Eternal God, our Father, Father of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, we do thank you for this day. We thank you, O Lord, that you sit supreme over all the heavens and the earth. We thank you, O Lord, that you are sovereign, you are in control, and that you hold all things in your hand. Lord, we pray right now that you give us grace. Please give us grace to understand your word that you shed light and illuminate our hearts to live and to have a deeper love for Jesus and his people. Lord, please be with us today because we need you in order to understand your word. We need your spirit. So, Lord, we do pray and plead with you now. Give us eyes that we may see, ears that we may hear, and behold all the wonderful things found according to your word. Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. A brother grabbed me one time by my arm, and he said, Brother, I am on fire for the Lord. He said, whoa, slow down. He said, I want to see people saved. I love Jesus and his people. person told me he had a desire to get baptized become a member at a church, and start discipling others. This was fascinating because this individual had no idea of the who's who among American Christian preachers. He had no desire to be a part of any specific group or even be labeled this type of Christian or that type of Christian. He wanted to live his life for the Lord completely. Maybe some of you can relate to this person. The Lord saved you. And as soon as you recognized the work of God being done in your life, you wanted to serve. You wanted to read books. And you wanted to read books that were full of sound doctrine. You wanted to grow and learn. You even wanted to call out false teachers. You wanted to sing for the Lord and serve in other ministries. But what if I told you that while these things can be good, but as you serve, you begin to slowly move away from your first love? In fact, what if I told you while doing these things at the same time, your love for God and others begin to dwindle. Your passion starts slowly fading away. And that is what the Apostle John is warning the church of Ephesus of today. Turn with me now to Revelation 2, verses 1 through 7. Revelation 2, verses 1 through 7. And as we look at this passage today, the Apostle John offers Three steps in helping the church of Ephesus return to its first love. Three steps that the Apostle gives, Apostle John gives, in helping this church return to its first love. He does this first by commending the church in verses 1 through 3. He counsels the church in verses 4 through 6. And finally, He commands the church in verse 7. He commends the church, verses 1 through 3. He counsels the church in verses 4 through 6. And he commands the church in verse 7. Now, the book of Revelation was written by the apostle John to reveal the culmination and future events for God's purposes in human history. In the first chapter... John writes about the glories of Christ. 
and the things which you have seen to now in chapter two, he's addressing the churches of Christ. Let us take a look at how John wants to help the church in Ephesus with step number one and how John commends this church in verses one through three. Follow with me as I go through the text. Verse one, to the church in Ephesus, write. In Revelation chapter one and verse 19, the Lord Jesus instructed the apostle John to write these things which you have seen, those things that are, and those things that take place after this. And this includes seven messages to seven churches. The seven churches are found in Revelation 2 and 3, and they are the church of Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, Laodicea, and the first message written to the church in Ephesus. This first message was written to someone. In fact, we find it was written to the angel. Now, an angel is a transcendent power who carries out various missions or tasks. Their primary existence is spiritual, and they, stay, they stand ready to help the churches as God commands. Their basic function is as messengers. Now, some interpret the word angel here as referring to a human messenger. Some, in fact, see this as a pastor. But who this angel specifically is, we don't know. So we will understand it to mean a divine messenger. Nevertheless, when the word angel is mentioned, it gives the indication that divine forces are at work in our churches. Even when we think that we are alone and no one is even paying attention, there are divine eyes that are watching and observing. This message is to be given to the, to the angel. And which angel is John referring to? He's referring to the angel of the church in Ephesus. Of the church in Ephesus. Now, church here is not the universal church, but the totality of Christians living and meeting in a particular location, not necessarily limited to one meeting place. The implications from this message can be applied to our lives as well. But this specific message is to the church located in Ephesus. Look with me now in verse 1. In Ephesus, this angel was affiliated with the local congregation in Ephesus. Now, what makes Ephesus so important? Why this particular church? Why this particular location or region? Why not Temple Hills Baptist Church? Ephesus, in biblical times, was a large and important city on the west coast of the Asia Minor. The ministry in this area probably, probably began around AD 50 through 52 as a result of the efforts of Priscilla and Aquila in Acts chapter 18. The Apostle Paul came in AD 52 and established a ministry there for three years, and it was believed that he wrote 1 Corinthians while there as well. Paul taught all who dealt in Asia. Paul was teaching in the synagogues and was speaking boldly about the kingdom of God, reasoning and persuading the people. He would eventually leave and instruct his disciple, Timothy, to combat false teachers 
and give instructions on the functioning of the church. This isn't what, this isn't all what Ephesus was known for. Ephesus was known for the temple of Artemis, a Greek goddess. It displayed a lot of prominence, and it was of great political importance, and it flourished as an important commercial and export center for Asia. This town was booming. But there was a church there that needed a message. Notice what John was instructed. He was instructed to write. It was a command saying, you, John, write. Write down what is about to be revealed. And as we go through these verses, we find that the message the angel will be delivering is not like an epistle. Remember, the Apostle Paul wrote specific epistles to specific churches about behaviors taking place. While the behavior of this church will be acknowledged, we find this to be a prophetic message regarding something that will happen in the future. So write this down so that you are prepared. To the angel in the church in Ephesus, write, the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand. Who is him? Jesus Christ. It is the words of Jesus Christ. But there is something that Jesus is doing. Notice, he is the one who holds. Holds implies using one's hands to establish close contact with something. And what does Jesus hold? He holds the seven stars. The number seven is a sacred number to the ancient Hebrew people. It symbolizes perfection, fullness, rest, and completion. The question is, why only seven? Wasn't there more churches in the area? Many believe so. But these seven were the centers of the postal district. And looking on a map, these churches stand on a pathway serving as great centers of communication. This makes it easier for the letters to circulate. The one who holds Seven stars. Now, the meaning of stars is heavily debated. They are unlikely to be explained merely by heavenly bodies, planets, or constellations. But it could display a possible association with the sovereignty of the Lord being over all. He holds the seven Stars. Where? Notice the text says, in his right hand. Right hand or right side refers to an exalted position. The one who is in control over the entire universe who holds the stars in his right hand. Friends, Christ is the only one who is in control over the angels and the stars. He has the power to exalt, and he has the power to bring down. But look at what else we find out about the Lord. Notice, he says, who walks among the seven golden lampstands, says, this. He is the one who walks or goes about. It is the idea of concern for and authority over the church. He walks, and where does he walk? Among the seven golden lampstands. Gold, which some of us have on here today, 
Gold was a precious metal used for numerous items in good ways and also in bad ways. Lampstands were items in which lamps were placed or hung. Now, why is this important? Lamps were a symbol for understanding, guidance, and light. In Revelation chapter 1, verse 20, lampstands were symbolically referred to as churches. The lampstands were precious and served as items for which lamps would be placed and illuminated. Now, this verse is extraordinary because all within this verse, we find Christ being sovereign and supreme over the angels, the stars, and the church. And not only that, he is all-knowing. And we find out more about him being all-knowing in verse 2. Look with me now at verse 2. I know your works and your toil and your patient endurance. Notice, these were the good things the church was known for. First, for their work and labor in the ministry. Jesus says, I know, or I have information about your works. This is a personal message, and Jesus was well acquainted with these believers. Look, or take a glance just within these verses at how many times you or your is used throughout these verses. Over 14 times, Jesus uses the pronoun you or your. This was all in reference to this church. I know or recognize your deeds. I know your actions. And look at what he says next. And your toil. Toil speaks to an to engaging in an activity that is burdensome, laborious, or loving service. And your patient endurance. This was a church that went through persecutions, trials, and endured faithfully. Now, let's pause for a moment. Christ is intimately aware of what goes on in our church. And even when we don't know it or recognize it or pay attention to it, Jesus knows all of our deeds, our toils, and when we persevere. He knows it all, and because of that, it should lead us to worship and praise him, amen? But let's look at a second item this church was commended for. Look at what he says. He says, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil. This church was commended for their hatred of sin. The church at Ephesus could not endure evil people. If sin would arise, they would work to administer church discipline. What about us? Would we tolerate sin within our midst? Or would we give a pass like that is so prevalent today in our society? Because, friends, there is a difference in tolerating sin and displaying grace toward a struggling individual. This church would not tolerate sin amongst the congregation. But not only that, John says this. He says, but you have tested those who call themselves apostles. This is the third good thing that they were commended for. The word test 
refers to endeavor to discover the nature or character of something. In other words, they had discernment. They were able to determine whether the word someone was speaking to them was true or it was false. It involved careful and close examination to determine the validity or claims of the one who was speaking. And you put to the test those, those who call themselves or say that they are apostles. Now, we even have today individuals calling themselves apostles. <laughs> and we need to have discernment to test whether or not they match up with what the Bible says that they are. An apostle was one who was a human messenger of the Lord Jesus Christ. It was a man who Jesus delegated authority for certain tasks. And one of the criteria for being an apostle was this. You had to have seen or witnessed the Lord Jesus Christ, him risen. This church had a considerable amount of discernment. And as individuals would come into their midst, claiming to be apostles, they would test them. They would put them under intense scrutiny to see if they were of the Lord. But not only that, they would correctly identify them as false teachers too. As Jesus says next, they are not. And you found them to be false. This church's discernment was, wow! They, they found out that these, these false apostles were deceivers. They were false teachers seeking to invade the church. It is believed these evil men were probably of the Nicolaitans, whom we will find out more about in verse 6. These individuals would act like wandering missionaries. They would go from house church to house church, calling themselves apostles. But the church of Ephesus probably heeded Paul's warning in Acts chapter 20, verses 28 through 30. And here I'm going to paraphrase when he says, be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock. I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. This church was known for their works, their toil, their hatred of sin, their discernment. In verse 3, I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. This church, once again, is commended for their ability to hold out or to bear up in the face of difficulty and have endured and carried the burden for who? For my name's sake. This church endured faithfully for the name of Christ. They didn't waver in the truth. They stood firm. Now let's review. They had good doctrine, check. They didn't grow weary, check. They were discerning, check. They worked to spiritual exhaustion, check. Now, many of us would consider them to be a solid church, right? And many of us would also say, hey, if this church was in Maryland, I may want to visit. John commends this church in verses 1 through 3. But this church is in need of counsel. This church is in need of counsel. Look at what John says next in verses 4 through 6. Verse 4. But I have this against you, that you abandon the love you had at first. 
Jesus, John uses the word but. It is a conjunction. Conjunction, junction. What's your function? <laughs> it is connecting what he said to the previous verse. They have done so well in these other areas, but now here comes a contrast. Now, before you get too excited, hold on, slow down. And what is fascinating here is his method of counseling. He begins first with being encouraging before he is critical. They haven't forsaken the faith because they are discerning. Both are commendable. But often, we, jump to, we often jump to what believers are doing wrong before we even think about encouraging. Nevertheless, look at what he says. He says, but I, being Jesus, have this against you. I am in divine opposition of this particular thing. What is it that Jesus is not pleased with? John responds with, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Jesus is in opposition of, against them because they have left their first love. They have forsaken the unconditional self-sacrificial love. Now, the question that comes to mind is this. Where should a believer's first love be, and how does one lose it? Well, Jesus makes it clear where our first love should be. In Matthew chapter 26 and chapter 22, verses 36 through 39, when he says this. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? He said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. This is the great and foremost commandment. Second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. John 13, verse 35 says this, By this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Now, the question is, how can a church lose their first love? How can a church lose their first love? How can we here in this assembly today lose our first love? The church can do this by forgetting the very main reason for why they do what they do and who they do it for. When is the last time we have sat back and asked ourselves and examined ourselves, why do I do what I do? When I examine my actions, who do I do them for? Where does my motivation lie? Am I seeking spiritual brownie points? Am I trying to get more followers? Do we want more members in this church? Why do we do what we do and who do we do it for? The church had lost their passion and determination to love God and his people. And friends, we have seen this all throughout the Bible, where love for God and or love for people is replaced for idols. This is called spiritual adultery. Israel replaced love for God by worshiping golden calves at Mount Sinai. Hosea writes an entire book depicting the spiritual adultery of Israel. 
And Jesus warns the church because even doing good things can become idols and result in a lack of love for God and a love for his people. Friends, good works and sound doctrine are not substitutes for the rich relationship of mutual love shared by those who experience the redemptive love of God. If you have ever been or thought you may have had a first love, you can identify what it is. It's that starry-eyed love. You have those strong feelings. You can't stop thinking about a person. You spend numerous hours on the phone asking the person, what you are doing, what, what are you doing? <laughs> when knowing good and well, you've been on the phone for the last three hours, so you know what that person is doing. They've been on the phone with you. You can't stop thinking about a person. I've even seen that some of that here. I asked a sister, I mentioned the brother's name, and the smile gets so big, Colgate White's showing. You do whatever it takes to be with that person. You always want to be with them, to hear their voice and make them smile. You are gliding on clouds to which you never want to come down. But in marriage, romance can kind of become routine. Life happens. You get older, maybe a little bit more around the waist. The passion you once had doesn't quite burn like it once did. Now, imagine a husband saying to his wife this, I don't love you anymore, but nothing will change. I'll still provide for you. I will still sleep with you and father your children. I just don't love you anymore. You've become roommates. To abandon your first love is like saying to the Lord, Lord, I don't love you like I once did. I'll still give to the church. I'll still come to the church. I'll still even pray for the church. And this is what happened to the church in Ephesus. I just don't love you. They left their first love. Have we become so devoted to deeds while abandoning our first love? We love, we love truth. We love sound doctrine. We love singing. We love calling out false teachers. All the while allowing the fresh aroma of the love of God and one another to descend. Ephesus lost their fire and passion. Now, this doesn't mean that they weren't believers, but rather their love had grown cold and had been replaced with a harsh zeal for doctrine. And here's the thing, I want you to know this. Loving good teaching isn't wrong. Loving sound doctrine ain't wrong. Singing for the Lord ain't wrong. Being discerning isn't wrong, but all of these things must be kept in their proper perspective if it leaves us with less of a desire to love God and his people. Christ lays out this warning because Judas had good doctrine. Sitting at the feet of Jesus all hours of the day, yet he did not love God or his neighbor. Have we been more zealous in doctrine, but not in love towards God and compassion toward others? Because knowledge puffs up, but only love edifies. John continues in verse 5 with a prescription now. He says this, Remember, Therefore, 
from where you have fallen and repent and do the deeds you did at first or else I am coming to you and will remove your lampstand out of its place unless you repent. In order for the church in Ephesus to return to his first love, John gives three instructions. First, John introduces a command. The first thing he wants them to do is remember, therefore, or keep in mind. Think back to where or realize at what point from where you have fallen. It's not only a call to mind, but to act upon it as well. You were at the height of one place, and now you're down. Remember the days when love abounded in the congregation. Second, he says, repent. To repent is a change of one's mind, which leads to a change of actions from a transformed heart. It is a godly sorrow for sin. It is a turning away from sin, disobedience, and rebellion, and turning to Christ in faith. First, remember. Second, repent. And third, do. And do the works you did at first. Do or bring about the actions or the things that you did earlier. This may include spending more time in the Word, spending more time with other believers in the church, seeking ways that you can serve them, calling other believers and checking on them, seeing if someone has needs, seeking out non-believers. Do the works you did at first, and here comes the negation. Jesus says, if not, if not, I will come to you. I will come see you. If they persist in sin, Jesus will come to them and remove your lampstand from its place. Some of us have even had parents that say, don't make me come over there. Jesus says, if not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. That is, it will no longer hold the light of witness to the world. Now, this could be a warning of against apostasy or the loss of their status as a church. In other words, this church would be no more. Now, this won't be his final return, but Jesus would remove his presence from the church, and he says, unless you repent. Now, repentance is this. It's when you're going towards Richmond, Virginia on the highway, and then you realize, I need to be heading north toward Baltimore. <laughs> Repentance isn't just thinking about changing directions or courses. It isn't just watching other folks driving by, wondering if they are going the wrong direction, too. Repentance is looking for the next exit, getting off, crossing over, and going back the right direction toward your way home. Repentance is a change of heart leading to a change of mind, leading to a change of direction and actions. First, remember. Second, repent. Third, do. Earlier, I mentioned John is counseling them in the word and to notice his counseling method. 
He has encouraged. He has rebuked. And notice, he returns back to encourage and build up. Verse 6. Yet this you have. You hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. We return back to a commendation. He says, yet this you do have. You do possess. You do contain. You hate the deeds or works of the Nicolaitans. Now, the Nicolaitans were a heretical sect who were around the region during this time. Many believe they held doc the doctrine of Balaam, who taught Israel to eat things sacrificed to idols and to commit sexual immorality. What many believe is that this group lived and indulged in everything because there's grace. I can do anything that I want because there's freedom in Christ and there's grace. They would claim Christ, as many believe this group came from an early deacon named Nicholas in Acts 6, verse 5. But the church is commended because not only does the church hate their deeds, but so does Jesus. Friends, love for God and love for others does not entail acceptance of sin. And notice, hatred is not directed towards people, but their deeds. The hatred this church had toward this group, this group's sins, parallels with the hatred Jesus had toward their deeds. This should mark us as a church as well. John has given us two steps in helping this church return to its first love by commending, second, by counseling, and last, by a command in verse 7. Commanding in verse 7. Notice he says this. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. John concludes with he. Or whoever has an ear. Now, the significance about an ear, we all know, is it the ability to listen or to hear. And many of us have probably heard this saying. We have two ears and one mouth, so we probably should do more listening than we do talking. And John isn't referring only to the mental ability to understand, but also this can apply to the spiritual as well. He who has an ear, John says, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This is a command to listen. But who or what should the church listen to? John says, to what the Spirit says. The Holy Spirit, the one who comes upon Christians, purifying and sanctifying them. The helper whom Jesus left, the one who guided early Christian missionary work. And he speaks. The most blessed thing is that the all-knowing Savior knows what's going on in his church and makes it known where repentance needs to take place. And he does this all by his spirit. Listen to what the spirit says to the church. And lastly, to the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. To the one who overcomes the one who remains faithful to Christ unto the very end. Friends, this is what Christ calls us to. He calls us to remain faithful until the end. A life of faithfulness unto him. The one who overcomes, he says, I will grant to eat. This is a future guarantee. This 
will happen. You can bank on this. This is a promise. He will make it possible. He will make it possible for you to take in and consume of the tree of life. It will be a never-ending buffet. It is the tree that doesn't bring about life or death or evil. It is the tree that brings about life, excuse me, and not about death or evil. And this is referenced to in Genesis chapter 2 and verse 9. And the only one who can grant access to this tree for his people to consume and have continuing life is the Lord Jesus Christ. The second Adam who offers us eternal life to all who turn from their sins and believe upon him. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but shall have eternal life. God has given us eternal life, and this life is only found in his son. Not Buddha, not Muhammad, but in Jesus Christ and him alone. He is the son who has life, and he who does not have the son does not have the life. So if you want to have eternal life today, then today is the day that you turn from your sins and believe upon Jesus Christ. Believe that he died on the cross, that he rose on the third day, and he defeated sin and death, and he is alive again today. Don't you trust him? He is the Alpha and the Omega. He is the Great I Am. And he grants access to eat of the tree of life. And where is this tree? John says this. It is in the paradise of God. You think the Bahamas is something. <laughs> you think Miami is something. This place is a transcendent place of blessedness. It is the place where the Lord dwells. This is, a, this is his final exhortation. This is a promise of inheriting salvation. Omar, you think them wings you ate last night was good. Wait till you get to heaven. <laughs> this is a promise. The Ephesians who overcome would experience a reversal of the fall and restoration with access to the Almighty God. But what about us? Are our lives today needing repentance and restoration? If we really do we realize on this on this Mother's Day that we have lost our first love? Have we been a church? more consumed with deeds and calling out folks rather than loving God, loving one another, and loving the lost. This is what John leads us to. So what now? Well, he gives a prescription in these verses. Let us remember where we have fallen. Because all of us, most of us here, I assume, have been saved. Do you remember when you first became a Christian? That fire and passion that you had? Ask the Lord to reignite the love for him and his people. And this may mean spending more time in the word and in prayer. And also listening to the testimonies of other saints are helpful. Next week, we'll be having evening service. And one of our times that we set aside is to hear the testimonies of God's faithful work in his people. Second, repent. Let us ask the Lord to turn from our loveless ways of routine church, where we just come in and we listen to a good sermon and we talk about sports and then we go on home. And we don't hear from each other until next Sunday. 
Let us ask the Lord to help us to turn from our loveless ways of routine church. And third, let us do the deeds that we did at first. Think about those things that you did at first and do them. When the Lord first saved you, what was it that you did that you had a fire and a passion for? And return to them. And it didn't matter if you got paid. It didn't matter what if people gave you encouragement or what, but you did them because you had a love for God and a love for his people. And if our, and some of us, there may be some here whose desire and their love for God is already burning. Well, I just encourage you to excel still more. We have looked at three steps at how John helps this church to return to its first love. He does this by commending, counseling, and commanding. But this is not an example for just the church in Ephesus, but for us as well. We start off, as the person I mentioned earlier, having a passion for the Lord. We end up being becoming consumed with boasting. We are a healthy church. Boasting our, we sound. We call out false teachers. We toil and persevere, but our motivation can be wrong. And the Apostle Paul was all too familiar with this type of loss as well. There was a man whom he saw groomed in the faith. He was toiling. He was laboring with Paul. He was a fellow worker in the faith. He would send his greetings to other saints in the faith as well. But something happened along the way. He lost his first love. 2 Timothy chapter 4 and verses 8 through 9 reads this. Make every effort to come to me soon. For Demas having loved this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. May this not be said of any of us. Be encouraged, saints, today. Because God can bring restoration. He can reignite that fire and that passion in you. And if this is us, if we have lost that fire and that passion, let us ask the Lord, Lord, please revitalize our hearts. Give us a hunger for you, your word, your people, and the loss. Let us pray. Most gracious Father, we thank you for this sobering and weighty text this morning. I pray that you enact upon all our lives and our hearts that if we have lost our first love, that you bring restoration, that you bring that fire and that passion back to live for you and for your people. Would you do a work in us now, O oh Lord? Please work upon our minds and our hearts and lead us closer to thee. Thank you for your word. In Jesus' name.